Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the wonderful and prestigious Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of my experienced and brilliant attorneys, Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm, and Anna Stepanova, who's not only a brilliant attorney, but was a former designated school official or a DSO in the International Student Office at a prestigious Big Ten University right here in the US. For many young people around the world, including those from India, the dream of coming to the United States to study is a foregone conclusion. For many, this dream can only become true by making certain commitments and sacrifices, including years of hard work and saving that you and your family have undertaken for, to realize this dream. Therefore, choosing the right university in the United States is important and typically a difficult one as most aspiring students have to do while they are still in a foreign country, in your home country, whether it's in India or somewhere else. In this teleconference or webinar, we will address some very important issues that prospective students are faced with when trying to choose a university to pursue higher education, and we hope to share some useful tips with you on potential warning signs or problems. Today, we also hope to address immigration-related laws and regulations for students that you would need to do before making your education decision. So, Anna, why is it important for students coming from outside, from abroad, to the United States to understand F1 laws and regulations? Thank you, Sheila. It's very important to understand all these complex immigration regulations and rules governing F-1 non-immigrant status because they're so complex. And a lot depends on how well students will be following the rules when they are about to come to the U.S. and when they're already here in the U.S. studying at the U.S. school. These rules govern most daily aspects of one's life as a student. That includes academic study and class enrolling, uh, enrollment, how many classes a student must take to maintain their status, uh, employment, uh, travel, when to travel, how to travel, what uh, one has to, be, to have with them, financial ability to be able to attend a school, and practical training, including curricular practical training and optional practical training. These are all the aspects that are very important to understand, which will control one's life as a student in the U.S. While one may be required to learn many of the intricacies of a rule that affects that person's status at a given moment, what we will try to do today is give you the basic understanding of what these rules may be in order for you to recognize and address potential problems as soon as or even before they arise. Okay, thank you so much, Anna. And of course, besides all of what Anna just explained, the, all of the other issues dealing with gathering sufficient funds that she referred to in the financial ability and getting used to mentally and psychologically and emotionally trying to make the transition from a country that you've grown up and spent your entire life to a brand new culture can be a little bit overwhelming for most people and a little bit scary on many levels. Um, and so those are issues that you all as students have to grapple with and your families have to grapple with in your making the decision. So Aaron, 
What are the steps, the first steps towards studying in the United States for the F-1 student? Well, thank you, Sheila. Generally, the first steps at obtaining an F-1 visa or changing to F-1 status is to be admitted to a program of study at a school certified by the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, also referred to as SEVP. Okay, and we'll be explaining more of that in a little while. So, Anna, we'll come back to you. And what are the requirements for admission into a university? There are two aspects to an admission for um, foreign students. As Aaron just mentioned, that would be obtaining uh, to be admitted uh, to a school certified by SCVP, but that's an immigration aspect. There is also an academic aspect. Each school would have a number, number of general and school-specific requirements that will usually be listed on its website. Generally, a prospective student must meet general requirements such as English language proficiency, but no English language proficiency is required for a student that, who is applying for a non-degree English language program, and also financial ability. These requirements apply to an immigration aspect of becoming a student in the U.S. With regard to academic requirements, you need to check with each school directly, and usually they will be very helpful, and uh, sometimes they uh, may correspond with you directly, explaining what their academic requirements are. And the application process. And the application process. Uh, with regard to immigration process, when uh, you already obtain an I-20 form from the school, you can apply for a visa. You will also need to um, pay uh, a CVS I-901 fee. A visa may be issued up to 120 days before the start of your program, which is indicated on your Form I-20, and the student may enter the U.S. up to 30 days in advance of study. Very good. Yeah, I think many people are always curious whether we can come a few months earlier and hang out. And the real issue is the maximum you can come in, as we know, is 30 days in advance. So, Aaron, what are the typical warning signs that students should be looking for when applying for admission to a school? Because we've seen a few recent incidents with universities having some problems where the students relied on the good faith information of the university and then found themselves in trouble. So what are the sorts of warning signs that we as students coming should be thinking about? You know, there are many warning signs that a student should consider when deciding which school to go to. Uh, the first one that I can think of is to do a quick and easy search by performing a Google search or an open source search on the internet. You may be surprised at the amount of useful information you can get when searching the internet. Second of all, I would recommend checking the school's own website, which can really say a lot about its academic and immigration practices. Frequent typos, relatively unsophisticated web design, information that does not have to appear to have been updated for a very long time, information unproportionately referring to foreign students on the school's homepage, uh, frequent references to student employment or job placement, all of those may be warning signs of some types of problems. In addition, you can find articles, chats, forums, blogs, news announcements uh, about government investigations, bad student experiences, improper actions. There's so many stuff that's out there that it should be something that you should be able to find by going in that manner. Typically, those schools that have been investigated, such as a TVU or a UNVA, have plenty of coverage on the Internet. See if you can find some mentioning of whether the school 
is known for the offering employment authorization in the first year of study, and whether it appears that it has a lot of online education options that are available. So basically you're saying if, there, if the school has any mention of the school offering employment authorization in the first year of study uh, and a ton of um, online options, that it's less likely to be completely clean and kosher. Absolutely, especially for first year work authorization, for first semester work authorization is much more complex and usually is something that can create a problem. Okay, thank you, Erin. Anna, what are the other signs of problems that we see? Other signs uh, that are associated with schools that have had problems with investigations and uh, immigration regulations, they are something that you would probably not think um, about as the first uh, warning, red flag or warning, but look at the email that you receive from the school. Look at the communication. If it appears not as formal as could be expected from a respectable university, that could be a warning sign. For example, if you receive an email from the school that does not end in .edu, that could could not be a warning sign, but most schools would have their email accounts and in .edu as well as their websites. If it contains typographical or spelling errors, it is usually an indication of not a very credible operation either. If a school has contracted with a company that is only associated or somehow affiliated with the school, but it's not the school itself that could also be something that is uh, an indication of a problem. The school is supposed to administer the F1 program on its campus without uh, any companies that are affiliated with the school contacting the students uh, themselves. That is because the school is the entity that has been certified by, by SVP and uh, they are the only ones who are able and actually must uh, administer the F1 programs themselves. Wonderful, thank you, Anna. And and one thing that I think it's important to remember is if you don't feel that English was your first language as a child, it's not perfect in some way, you may want to have another person uh, in your family or friend circle review the information you receive to determine if the document has grammatical errors because sometimes, you know, if English has not been your first language, it may not be as easy to pick up on minor grammatical issues, which is usually a red flag uh, in, in verifying the university and its credibility. So continuing on with the cr- uh, credibility of the university, what is accreditation and certification, and how are they different, and what are these requirements for a university? Well, Sheila, accreditation by the U.S. Department of Education and certification by ICE Student Exchange and Visitor Program, which we referred to before as SEVP, are two completely separate things, and each one are very important points to consider. Please understand that in order for the school to enroll students in an F-1 status, it only has to be certified by SEVP uh, for administering the F-1 program, but it does not have to be accredited by the U.S. Department of Education. To see if the school is accredited, you would go to uh, ope.ed.gov forward slash accreditation forward slash. I'm going to say that again. That's ope.ed.gov 
forward slash accreditation forward slash. The accreditation is to ensure that the level of learning meets certain requirements and is at the level sufficient to gain admission to other reputable institutions. So for example, if a school is not accredited, you may complete a bachelor's program there, but you may not be able to get into a master's program at another reputable school in the United States. To determine if the school is certified by SEVP, which is the program that would allow a person to comply with immigration law and to enter into the United States, you would go to studyinthestates.dhs.gov forward slash school hyphen search. I'm going to say it again. That's studyinthestates.dhs.gov forward slash school hyphen search. And you would look to see if the school is on the list of approved school for certification. Okay. So, so Anna, then, if the school is actually SEVP uh, eligible but is not accredited, is that any kind of a warning sign? If the school is certified by SCVP and not accredited, it can certainly be a warning sign, even though, as Aaron just mentioned, in order to come here as an F1 student on an I-20 form that was issued by the school, the school does not have to be accredited by uh, the U.S. Department of Education. However, in our experience, most of the schools that have had problems uh, and violations of immigration laws have not been accredited by the U.S. Department of Education. So, yes, it could be a warning sign that you need to carefully consider. Wonderful. So it's always advisable to select a school that is both accredited and certified by a CVP in order to be safe and sure that hopefully nothing will go wrong. That is the best approach to selecting a school in the U.S. Okay, so at this point, what I'm going to do is go over the basic requirements for maintenance of F-1 status when you're in the United States as a full-time student on F-1. As many of you may already be aware of this, and if not, hopefully you've done your research and spoken with your DSO at the International Student Office. A student is required to maintain a full load of classes and make normal progress towards completion of the degree to maintain valid F-1 status. If the student falls below full-time enrollment, the student would generally be considered to be out of status. However, in some limited cases, the DSO, the designated school official, as I told you, Anna was a DSO, may authorize a reduced course load so that the student's status remains valid. This usually is when the student is ill or sick, and usually it's 12 credits in the undergraduate program. So in addition, a student should be mindful of not exceeding the amount of coursework that they are permitted to take online or through distance education. Generally, no more than one class or three credit hours of such enrollment is permitted during each semester. And in some times, and in some cases, you're, you can't even start it right away, the online program. You're only allowed to start it after your first year of education at the university. Uh, students may engage in specific types of employment permitted both with and without authorization. For example, you have on-campus employment, which can be permitted not to exceed 20 hours when the school is in session and full-time during regular school breaks and vacation time, which does not require the separate authorization. However, off-campus employment requires authorization from either the DSO or USCIS. 
or sometimes both. Most commonly, off-campus employment includes curricular practical training and optional practical training. Except in very limited circumstances, students must be enrolled in a full-time course of study for at least one full academic year before they're eligible for CPT or OPT, and the exceptions are if it's required mandatory part of the program, etc. Um, and so those are potential issues. And even the, edu- the work itself, in most cases, the student has to show financial need um, in order to be eligible for the DSO to approve and agree to uh, the 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 CPT or the OPT, uh, the CPT portion of it during the program. Aaron, what are the most common violations of F1 status? Well, I'm going to go into the most common violations of F1 status, but you mentioned about the DSO, and I just wanted to do one preliminary thing before we jumped in. The thing about the DSO that everybody needs to know and be very ca- careful about is that the DSO is imputed with a lot of authority from the SEVP, when they're making decisions and how they're uploading information into their computer base. This means that if you go to the DSO and you ask them for guidance, if the DSO is incorrect and they provide you with with guidance, it's not necessarily going to be helpful for you to say, the DSO made me do it or the DSO said that it's okay. There's going to be no substitution for knowing the law on your own and if it feels wrong, to double and triple check to make sure you don't get into a funny place. But it seems so difficult and unfair because so many students rely on the DSO to give them the advice. They're foreign to a country. Their language may not even be the first language. They're unfamiliar with the culture, with the systems, with the traditions. They're not used to freezing cold winters from nice warm 80 degree to 80 to 100 degrees temperature in a country like India to come to sub-freezing in Boston like I came when I came to study at Harvard Law School with five feet of snow. And now you're telling me I have to learn immigration law when even the DSO whose job it is is making mistakes and giving me wrong advice as a foreign student? You know, unfortunately, when we met with the ambassador to India, when we met with high-ranking officials with SEVP, we brought up exactly the issue, Sheila, that you just mentioned. And as emphatically as you stated it right now, they all acknowledge it's a problem. And they all feel for what's going on. At the same time, the way the law is set up, it does have that uh, indusha where they can portray something that's inaccurate and the student will struggle to overcome that situation. Aaron, and it looks like Anna is dying to say something. Go ahead, Anna. Yes, Sheila, that's exactly right. The DSOs uh, sometimes don't follow the rules themselves, and unfortunately, that's the fact of life. That's why it's so important to know all of these rules before you actually come to the U.S., and that's that's exactly the reason why we are here today and why we are telling you what the rules are so that you can follow them when you are when you become a student in the US and we also discovered that DSOs at reputable schools if you select your school correctly you'll get a good DSO I guarantee it uh-huh. Uh-huh. spoken from your own wise experience <laughs> huh, Anna? So, so Aaron so let's come back to the issue I know it's such a hot topic and I know it makes people very upset because when you spend your life savings coming to a university and a school you expect to be given guidance appropriately so that you and your family's life savings are not wasted but you're telling us to that it's buyer beware come in as a student and be cautious and careful so what are the common violations of F1 status Well, most common violations of F-1 status result from the student's lack of knowledge of immigration laws and regulations that deal with F-1 status and the school allowing and even encouraging its students 
to engage in impermissible action. USCIS often looks for specific violations common to students who are enrolled in schools with less than perfect reputations. So these violations can include authorization for curricular practical training by the school in the first year, recommendation for optional practical training after less than one year of study, falling below a full load of courses without proper authorization, taking more than one three-hour credit class uh, per semester, working in the field different from the field of study even with prior authorization. You mean one three-hour online credit class? I'm sorry, I misspoke. That's correct. One three-hour online credit class per semester. Thank you, Sheila. Sure, sure. And even with the one year of study, it's actually nine months of academic program. But we say one year because it's one full year, but it's actually nine months of study. So just as we're giving these rules, I I think it's important for you to remember that uh, university education course, because I don't want a student going away thinking, oh, my God, I only did nine months of class from August or September through May. Absolutely. It's a full academic year, which is nine months. And again, this teleconference is really a place for everybody to start, but certainly it's not where your education should end. These violations that we just went through may result in failure to maintain status and inability to change to another non-immigrant status like in the, the U.S. H-1B like the H-1B or L-1 or to re-enter the U.S. after international travel. Inability to obtain a new visa or status, or even to obtain lawful permanent residency down the road. That sounds all pretty scary, I think, for our students. And, you know, it's truly difficult because I think most of us that come as foreign students, and it includes me because I came personally uh, on an F1 and then switched to a J1 um, with an international program and then did the H1B and the green card and then became a citizen. I went through the whole nine yards of going through the process, and that was a long time ago. And I'll tell you, the rules are becoming more and more strict. It's more and more scary for people. And it seems so unfair that they are making us as students responsible when we are just trying to figure out the country and the culture. So the general advice that we can give is that when applying to a school for admission, try to learn as much about the school as possible from the internet, from your friends, by speaking with other people so that you have a lot of knowledge. Remember what your parents always told you and your teacher told you, knowledge is power. If you notice that the school has many warning signs, like the ones that we've discussed in today's teleconference, trust your knowledge, your intuition, and the Murthy Law Firm's brilliant attorneys, and your own common sense, which we always tell people, never check out your common sense about the school's legitimacy and authenticity. Educate yourself about the requirements and the restrictions of the F1 status. Try to avoid committing any kind of status violation even if your school seems to endorse or authorize or encourages you. This is just literally the tip of the iceberg. There are so many nuances and uh, sessions on each of these questions. We, Anna, Aaron, and myself could literally go and spend a couple of hours because each nuance and each issue has sub-areas of complexity and gray areas. On behalf of Aaron, Anna, and myself and our entire Muti Law Firm team, We really wish to thank you for investing your precious and valuable time, effort, and energy to participate in today's conference on F1 student-related issues. 
We certainly look forward to continuing to help and guide you on your F1, J1, and other student-related issues. And as you transition in your life from a student to work and live and permanently in this great land of milk and honey, of opportunity, and to realize your American dream. Thank you so much for being a part of our team and our family, and we look forward to continuing to help you to realize your dream. Have a wonderful day.